Hello and welcome to the podcast, Where Did the Rabbit Go? In this weekly podcast, we celebrate curiosity, critical thinking, and evidence-based skepticism. I'm your host, Marco, and this is show 55 for Thursday, February 11th, 2021. Remember how last week I told you that we call this month Febrero Loco? Crazy February? I was saying that when I was giving you the weekly weather update. By the way, do you like that? Should I continue? Anyway, the point was that we had a really mild winter. Uh, only the first takes back to classes in January, the houses were very cold. But for the last few weeks, we mostly had t-shirt weather. Beautiful sunny days with temperatures oscillating between 20 and 30 degrees. And I was speculating that winter would already be over. As for right now, I'm sitting here with the open window, as you might hear, with the background noises, with a sleeveless t-shirt. Well, the current weather forecast surely looks a little bit different than that. Febrero loco. There is a strong cold front coming, with polar air, and it will hit us on the weekend. Temperatures on Sunday and Monday are expected to go as low as 3 degrees below zero. And this is extraordinary. We barely ever get close to zero here. So it looks like I was celebrating a little bit too early. I will surely let you know how all of this went. For today, I thought I'd talk a little bit more about school. There are certain things that many of us just take for granted, but we should really question them. Today, I want to take a look at three of those arguments regarding school. Things that most of us believe to be true, but actually when studied in a controlled environment, they do not hold up. So we're going to talk about homework, about learning styles, and about school uniforms today. What do you say if we get right at it? Alright, I had to close the window, but now let's get to it. The first myth I want to talk about is the supposed benefit of homework. Of course, the common belief is that more homework means more learning, because homework means more practice, and more practice will make you better, right? Well, I kind of talked about this on a very early episode of this podcast. If you're interested to look back, it was episode number 5, about the 10,000 hour rule. That's the idea that 10,000 hours of practice in anything will bring you to be world-class level in that thing that you are practicing. But of course, more is not always better. Our minds are very complex, and they are not just a bucket to fill. So many teachers give homework with the idea that the student will practice at home, by themselves, what was already taught and practiced in the guided environment of the classroom. For many years, I myself would be giving homework to students. In one school, we even had a homework balancing spreadsheet, which would tell the teachers what days of the week each of them to give their students homework. The idea was that each day the students should be spending around one hour of homework in total, split between three or four school subjects. The arguments that were mentioned were mostly that students would of course practice more, they would practice the value of responsibility and that homework would keep them away from the evil screens of their TVs and cell phones. And it was just a given for everybody. The need of homework was never questioned. And I bet many teachers practice that way. 
Homework is just a given, something that is beneficial and does not have to be questioned. Well, everything should be questioned. And by questioning, I mean that it should be tested in a controlled environment. And that's precisely what has been done many times. And there are many different results. It looks like there are arguments for and against it, which makes the whole issue so difficult. That means everybody can cherry-pick a study that will confirm their already existing view. So we have to be careful not to cherry-pick. There was one article that sums it up nicely, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes, and we're going to take a look at it now. It says the following. According to Duke professor Harris Cooper, it is important that students have homework. His meta-analysis of homework studies showed a correlation between completing homework and academic success, at least in older grades. He recommends following a 10-minute rule. Students should receive 10 minutes of homework per day in first grade and 10 additional minutes each subsequent year so that by 12th grade they are completing 120 minutes of homework daily. I had also heard about this rule and it would just fit into this rule that my 8th graders were supposed to do one hour of homework per day. Let's continue. But the analysis did not prove that students did better because they did homework. It simply showed a correlation. This could simply mean that kids who do homework are more committed to doing well in school. Cooper has also found that some research shows that homework caused physical and emotional stress and created negative attitudes about learning. He suggested that more research needed to be done on homework's effect on kids. Some researchers say that the question isn't whether kids should have homework. It's more about what kind of homework students have and how much. To be effective, homework has to meet students' needs. For example, some middle school teachers have found success with online math homework that's adapted to each student's level of understanding. But when middle school students were assigned more than an hour and a half of homework, their math and science test scores went down. This is another thing that I have read about a lot, that... No more than 90 minutes of studying should ever be done without a break. Let's continue. Researchers at Indiana University discovered that math and science homework may improve standardized test grades, but they found no difference in course grades between students who did homework and those who didn't. These researchers theorized that homework doesn't result in more content mastery, but in greater familiarity with the kinds of questions that appear on standardized tests. According to Professor Adam Maltese, one of the study's authors, quote, our results hint that maybe homework is not being used as well as it could be. So while many teachers and parents support daily homework, it is hard to find strong evidence that the long-held practice produces positive results. In an article in Education Week Teacher, teacher Samantha Holzman said she's frequently heard parents complain that a 30-minute homework assignment turns into a three-hour battle with their kids. Now, she's facing the same problem with her own kids, which has her rethinking her former beliefs about homework. I think parents expect their children to have homework nightly, and teachers assign daily homework because it's what we've always done, she explained. Today, Holtzman said, it's more important to know how to collaborate and solve problems than it is to know specific facts. 
right? Uh, this is me speaking again. Uh, we're going towards project-based learning and uh, we're giving less and less importance to tests. At least that's what we should do. Let's go on. Child psychologist Kenneth Barish wrote in Psychology Today that battles over homework rarely result in a child's improvement in school. Children who don't do their homework are not lazy, he said, but they may be frustrated, discouraged, or anxious. And for kids with learning disabilities, homework is like running with a sprained ankle. It's doable, but painful. Yeah, I just talked about that last week about ADHD, right? Homework was always a struggle. Let's continue. Barish suggests that parents and kids have a homework plan that limits the time spent on homework. The plan should include turning off all devices, not just the students, but those belonging to all family members. One of the best-known critics of homework, Alfie Cohn, says that some people wrongly believe kids are like vending machines. Put in an assignment, get out learning. Cohn points to the lack of evidence that homework is an effective learning tool. In fact, he calls it the greatest single extinguisher of children's curiosity that we have yet invented. And here I stop looking at the article, but as I said, you can find it in the show notes if you want to read it by yourself. So for me, it looks like homework should be the absolute exception. If you ever ask for it as a teacher, it must be very meaningful and serve its purpose. But it seems that the risks outweigh the benefits. That's why I have moved away from giving homework to students. The only thing I give them for homework are study guides for tests, but then again, the students decide which parts they will practice. It's their choice. And of course, occasionally if students miss school, then they have to catch up, right? That's special cases. Let us take a look at another myth, the one of the different learning styles. And this one is the most prevalent of all of them, since it's believed by reportedly 97% of all teachers. And I remember that I was taught about this since my first job as a teacher as well. It's the belief that students are either visual learners, auditory learners, or kinesthetic learners. According to this belief, every student has a preferred learning style, and they learn best if the material is presented to them in that way which would mean that visual learners need to read, see charts, graphs, and images. Those who see themselves as auditory learners would learn best by listening. And kinesthetic learners need to move, manipulate, and learning by doing. Which kind of would mean, if you remember last week's episode, that all those hyperactive ADHD learners should be kinesthetic, and my first school went even further. They taught us tricks how to identify. Uh, identify. Hey, the Scottish accent is back. Identify. And my first school even went further. They taught us tricks how to identify our students' learning style. We were told to ask them questions. They could easily and quickly remember the answer. Like, what did you have for breakfast? And then we should watch their eyes. Supposedly, if they looked up to their brains or kept looking to the front, it would indicate that they are visual. And if they'd look to the sides where their ears are, then they would be auditory. And if they'd look down to their bodies, they would be kinesthetic. And of course, back then, 
being a young, inexperienced teacher, I would believe this and I would try it out. But of course, this is really just wishful thinking, believing in magic. The truth is that we are all visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learners. All of us. And the best way that we learn is when the input is multisensory, which means addressing as many senses as possible. We have to mix and match. And this was tested. They had students report on their preferred learning style, and then they'd either give the students information according to that style or in a different style, and it would make no difference. What made a difference was when the information was presented in a variable way, addressing all the types and as many senses as possible. The content has to be engaging. That's the key. It's just like the myth of teacher-centered classes in lecture style always being bad. Sure, if a teacher always is talking for 45 minutes and the students just sit there and listen, that's boring. And I had teachers like that. But a good lecture given by an enthusiastic teacher now and then for 10 or 15 minutes can be very effective and highly entertaining. You don't think so? Well, what's a TED Talk then? Okay, we're also quickly looking at an article that looks at this and also going to be in the show note, of course. Either way, by the time we get students at college, says Polly Hosman, a professor at Indiana University, they have already been told you're a visual learner or oral or what have you. The thing is, they are not, or at least a lot of evidence suggests that people aren't really one certain kind of learner or another. In a study published last month in the journal Anatomical Sciences Education, Hosman and her colleagues have had hundreds of students take the VARC questionnaire to determine what kind of learner they supposedly were. The survey then gave them some study strategies that seemed like they would correlate with that learning style. Hosman found that not only did students not study in ways that seemed to reflect their learning style, but those who did tailor their studying to suit their style didn't do any better on their tests. Hosman thinks that the students had fallen into certain study habits, which, once formed, were too hard to break. Students seem to be interested in their learning styles, but not enough to actually change their studying behavior based on them. And even if they had, it wouldn't have mattered. So, much about that article. So with time, I went away from trying to identify learning styles. Because there are two things happening here. First, it seems to reflect our human need to put people into categories. This is really just another version of astrology or of personality tests, if you think about it. In this case, it just has three categories. Which is also the second point. It is highly oversimplifying the complex nature of the human mind and personality traits. And it is wishful thinking. What we really should focus on is making classes engaging for students. Okay, let us go with the third and last school-related myth for today. Probably the biggest one, in my humble opinion. The belief that school uniforms are beneficial. I looked into this for a presentation in a class of my Master's in Education. I looked at all the supposed benefits and what the research is saying. And it reminded me of something. 
Um, the connection I'm making is the one to the anti-vaccination movement. The whole movement is based on one article only, the famous study by Andrew Wakefield, which has long been retracted. And school uniforms are a similar issue. When people tell you that there are many benefits to school uniforms, it really all goes back to one single study. But why would I rewrite this entire thing? Remember that I mentioned I gave a class presentation and I wrote a whole essay about this issue for that master's class. So why don't I simply read you the essay? Here it goes. Nothing to Wear, July 2019 by Marco Fitt. Over the past decades, the pressure on public and private schools to produce academic achievement has been constantly increasing. It is no surprise that lots of research has been conducted, leaving no stone unturned. Many schools, districts, and government came to the conclusion that the introduction of a strict dress code or even school uniforms would solve their problems, since school uniforms are a distinctive factor of several of most of the renowned institutions around the globe. The first long-term studies are just being published, but they cannot confirm the desired benefits about school uniforms. Even worse, recently not a single month goes by without new stories popping up on social media and in the news. Reporting a disparity in the use of the dress code, usually discriminating girls, and groups that are already in disadvantage, such as colored students. In this article, I want to unravel what current research says about school uniforms and in conclusion recommend the best possible way for schools to handle the issue of student clothing. Although fictional, Hogwarts School of Magic is very iconic and popular, and together with it, the school uniforms for the four different houses. Harry Potter fans all over the world gladly buy these merchandise articles and proudly wear them, be it a Gryffindor scarf or a Slytherin tie with a white button shirt. This kind of identification with a school is only one of the desired benefits of introducing uniforms in real-life schools, since Hogwarts is somewhat inspired by renowned schools like Harvard, Princeton, and other Ivy League members, whose uniforms are a great honor to wear. Let us explore the possible benefits of school uniforms that are typically given to justify their use, and let us take a look whether the research can provide data to confirm these promises. Other than increasing the student's identification with the school, one of the main hopes has always been to make the school a safer place. If all students wear the same clothes, then students wouldn't compare each other based on their clothing. Hence, school uniforms would reduce bullying on a campus and give the students a sense of belonging to their groups, just as jerseys of their favorite sports team would. Predictions went one step further. If there is less bullying and less distraction inside the classroom, then uniforms would also promise to actually increase academic achievement, the ultimate goal of all schools. Other than bullying, academic achievement is not subjectively self-reported, but can actually be measured, for instance with passing rates on averages on standardized tests, dropout rates, and number of graduations. Those being the main factors, there are other favorable arguments for school uniforms. Parents should be convinced by the fact that their children would no longer have to pick the clothes for each day, and this would prevent possible arguments within the family. 
In consequence, the parents would also save money in the long run, because the student's own clothes would not wear out as fast. Furthermore, those in favor claim that students would learn how to dress properly for a work environment and practice the value of responsibility through this process. What does the research say? Proponents always point at the great success in one experiment in Long Beach in the year 1995. After introducing school uniforms, violence rates on and off campus had dropped dramatically as well as student absence. However, in this case, they seem to confuse correlation with causation. At the same time as they introduced the new dress code, they also increased teacher supervision in the hallways. And they promised a financial bonus for those students who got excellent test scores, according to the report by Charles Badger. These incentives explain the observed benefits a lot better than attributing them to standardized clothing. Besides, such results have not been reproduced ever since. Most studies show that the effects are rather small or even non-existent. In a 2011 research paper, Jessica Velder reports that, quote, Findings indicate that there is no difference in graduation rates prior to the implementation of school uniforms and after implementation of school uniforms, and that there is no difference in discipline incidents prior to the implementation of school uniforms and after the implementation of school uniforms. Quote ends. So most of the alleged positive effects have been debunked, and the remaining ones are rather weak. Uniforms may truly be a way for students to practice responsibility, but they are definitely not the only way to achieve this. And do children in elementary schools really have to worry about learning how to dress for an office job already? Or wouldn't it be a better idea to let them enjoy their childhood? Besides, school uniforms also have disadvantages, which after looking at the research seem to weigh more than the tiny advantages. First of all, most students report that they dislike the school's uniform. Uniforms hinder students from expressing themselves individually, which is a factor that becomes more and more important to them through the years. School uniforms are often uncomfortable to wear, and they often discriminate against girls. As they are expected to wear a skirt, the uniform undermines them from practicing physical activity. Additionally, the argument that uniforms are cheaper for parents could not be confirmed. They are actually an additional financial burden. For teachers, the use of uniforms have great disadvantages too. They are expected to police the students, argue with them over an untucked shirt, and report students for a missing tie or too short skirts. If students are suspended, these reports make them lose precious class time. What are the options? if school uniforms appear to cause more harm than good. The alternative is letting students wear their own clothes. However, we come quickly to the conclusion that there must be certain rules to follow. If there are no limitations at all to the student's appearance, then other trouble could emerge. Therefore, even if schools let students wear their own clothes, they do have dress codes with established rules. From own experience, these dress codes are often not presenting clear boundaries, and if they do, those boundaries can be sexist or racist. Especially girls are complaining more and more about the disadvantages, and in times of social media, these cases spread out very fast and get very far. 
Take the example of Liz Martinez, whose complaint on Twitter in 2018 went viral. She decided not to wear a bra to school because it made her feel uncomfortable. The teacher noticed and sent her to the office, making her feel humiliated in front of her classmates. Even earlier in 2014, students in a Montreal high school posted a message in their school and again the photo went viral on social media. It reads, Don't humiliate her because she's wearing shorts. It's hot outside. Instead of shaming girls for their bodies, teach boys that girls are not sexual objects. Female students often complain that they are not allowed to wear dresses that show the knees, but if the same is the case with boys in their shorts, visible kneecaps are not an issue. The same applies to the modern ripped jeans. It seems that these, quote, distractions, as school boards see them, actually do not matter to male or female students. Discrimination can also happen among races. There are reports about students being suspended to wearing Rasta braids, a hairstyle that correlates more with black than white people. Similar disputes have been fought about dyed hair and piercings. Before coming to a conclusion, I would like to take a look at a sample of academically successful countries over the world. If school uniforms really correlated strongly with academic achievement, then we would mainly find countries with a strict and formal dress code on top of the PISA studies. This, however, is not the case. There are indeed some Asian countries with a traditional approach, such as South Korea and Hong Kong, and Australia is another country that made uniforms mandatory. As the other English-speaking countries among the top, Canada has mandatory uniforms in only one of its states, Quebec. In France, there might be still schools with uniforms, but they have not been enforced since 1968. Germany can even be found on the other extreme. There, the government believes that every student should have the right to wear whatever they feel most comfortable with, respecting their right of free expression. Uniforms are seen as a way of militarizing schools. Finland, famous for always being on top of the PISA studies, since the very first occasion is another country where school uniforms are not seen. If a student wants to attend school with blue-dyed hair, that student can feel free to do so. In conclusion, the claimed benefits for school uniforms have been proven mostly wrong by research. What is left are mostly disadvantages. An analysis of the best school systems in the world shows that schools can be successful with uniforms, with a strict or with a loose dress code, and without any limitations. Hattie's famous list of effects on academic success makes clear that the dress code is not one of the factors we should focus on. Trained, passionate teachers and the school's infrastructure are much more important. Therefore, the recommendation to schools must be that they may opt for a uniform if they have good reasons and the school community is on board, which might be the case in private Catholic schools, for example. For most schools, the recommendation, however, would be to let students attend to school the way they feel more comfortable. There must be rules in order to keep order. In order to keep order. Did I really write that in an academic essay? Huh. Okay. There must be rules, but they should be limited to a minimum number and must be chosen carefully. It is very important to keep the rules the same across gender and ethnic borders. 
rather than teaching girls that they will be judged for their clothes, this is a teachable moment to form boys who learn not to get aroused or offended by visible knees or shoulders. Also, the dress code should take into account recent fashion trends, such as jeans, which are mostly sold in ripped forms, and different ways to style the hair. Focusing on clothes, not only in school contexts, is rather superficial. A teacher is not more efficient just because he is wearing a tie or because her dress covers her knees. Against some people's belief, a tattoo or piercing does not decrease a teacher's talent or passion either. The purpose of school is to have children learn and grow and to prepare them for their future. With the correct set of values and positive relationships between all members of the school community, dress codes may actually be very loose and a true difference can be made. Students around the world are taking initiative on many issues such as sexism, unfair dress codes and global warming and pollution, which proves how much they care and how open their minds are. It is our turn to provide them with the proper environment in schools to enable them to thrive and really make a difference. All right, I hope you enjoyed this little piece of academic writing by yours truly almost two years ago. I surely enjoyed reading it again. The bottom line is, there's really not much benefit at all about school uniforms. Of course, other than the school being able to sell them. Which is cool. I mean, many young people go for hoodies of their school or university, or for a different one. It's cool merchandising. But that's about it. It should not be mandatory for students to wear this inside the classroom every day. Which brings me to the end of the main segment. I want to play another round of Find the Fake, because this time, boy, do I have three articles that I think are very interesting. So let's do this. Right, so let's do this. These are three news items that I posted this time on Instagram, and uh, one of them is fake, so you can still play along when you listen to this. Here we go. Item number one Astronomers found our twin star system with four rocky inner planets and four outer gas giants, just like our solar system. Item number two Sea turtles use a variety of senses including smell and magnetoreception, to find their way back to their beach from thousands of kilometers away. And item number three, scientists discovered that Venus flytraps can produce a measurable magnetic field around them. Which of these three do you think is fake? You can still play along, you can pause, because now we are going to reveal them. Let's take them in order. Item number one. Astronomers found our twin star system. Do you believe this? Well, you better not, because this one is the fake. Let us look at the actual heading and the article. So it's not a twin star system, but it is a news item that is related to exoplanets. And the heading goes, Two exoplanet families redefine what planetary systems can look like. 
Let us take a look at what the article says. Two tightly packed families of exoplanets are pushing the boundaries of what a planetary system can look like. New studies of the makeup of worlds orbiting two different stars show a wide range of planetary possibilities, all of them different from our solar system. When we study multiplanet systems, there's simply more information kept in these systems than any single planet by itself, says geophysicist Caroline Dorn from the University of Zurich. Studying the planets together tells us about the diversity within a system that we can't get from looking at individual planets. Dorn and colleagues studied an old favorite planetary system called TRAPPIST-1, which hosts seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a small dim star about 40 light-years away. Another team studied a recently identified system called TOY-178, which has at least six planets, three already known and three newly found, circling a bright, hot star roughly 200 light-years away. Both systems offer planetary scientists an advantage over the more than 3,000 other exoplanet families spotted to date. All seven planets in TRAPPIST-1 and all six in TOY-178 have well-known masses and radii. That means planetary scientists can figure out their densities, a clue to the planet's composition. The two systems also offer another advantage. The planets are packed in so close to their stars that most are engaged in a delicate orbital dance called a resonance chain. Every time an outer planet completes an orbit around its star, some of its closer in-sibling planets complete multiple orbits. Resonance chains are fragile arrangements and knocking a planet even slightly out of its orbit can destroy them. That means the TRAPPIST-1 and TOY-178 systems must have formed slowly and gently, says astronomer Adrian Leleu of the University of Geneva. And this article comes from sciencenews.org. So let's take at the other two quickly. The item number two about the sea turtles using smell and magnetoreception to find their way back to the beach is of course true. So let's take a look at that article from Science Focus. Hatchling sea turtles emerge from their nests, scramble down the beach and swim off into the open sea where they feed and grow. Many years and thousands of miles later, mature turtles return to their birthplace to mate and produce their own offspring. It's an incredible navigational endeavor, which has probably evolved to give hatchlings the best chance of survival. If a turtle successfully hatched on the beach, then there's a good chance the beach will still be suitable nesting site when it comes back. To pull off these feet, turtles call on a range of senses. Swimming through open seas, there's evidence that turtles can navigate using the position of the sun. Smells are also important. In aquarium tests, juvenile loggerhead sea turtles responded to the smell of mud piped into the air by swimming with their heads out of the water, but they ignored other odors, suggesting they recognized the characteristic scent of land. Probably the turtle's most important and certainly most mysterious sense is magnetoreception, their ability to detect the Earth's magnetic field. It's unknown exactly how they do it, but turtle hatchlings follow an inbuilt magnetic compass during their first swims offshore. Turtles also home in on slight variations in magnetic fields. Around Florida, for example, loggerhead turtles learn the magnetic signature of their natal beach. Green sea turtles tracked with satellite tags in the Indian Ocean were recently shown to follow a fairly crude magnetic map. Often, they overshot their destination island by hundreds of miles, but were able to reset their route 
or search until they found their target, perhaps using a combination of senses. Isn't that fascinating? Turtles truly are one of my favorite animals, of course, after rabbits. Um, and let's go to item number three. Scientists discovered that Venus flytraps can produce a measurable magnetical field around them, which is also true. Let's take a look at the article in Science Daily. An interdisciplinary team of researchers has now demonstrated that electrical activity in the Venus flytrap is also associated with magnetic signals. We have been able to demonstrate that action potentials in a multicellular plant system produce measurable magnetic fields, something that had never been confirmed before, said Anne Fabricant, a doctoral candidate in Professor Dimitri Bodka's research group at JGU and HIM. The trap of Dionanea muscipula, that's the plant, consists of bilobed trapping leaves with sensitive hairs, which, when touched, trigger an action potential that travels through the whole trap. After two successive stimuli, the trap closes and any potential insect prey is locked inside and subsequently digested. Interestingly, the trap is electrically excitable in a variety of ways. In addition to mechanical influences such as touch or injury, osmotic energy, for example saltwater loads, and thermal energy in the form of heat or cold can also trigger action potentials. For their study, the research team used heat stimulation to induce action potentials, thereby eliminating potentially disturbing factors such as mechanical background noise in their magnetic measurement. Alright, there you go. So, how did the listeners do on Instagram? Well, I want to congratulate Claudia Gutierrez for guessing it right, and that makes 100% of everybody who participated. Because, yeah, it looks like Instagram is not that engaging. So I want to invite you guys um, to TikTok, where I think it's much more engaging. Instagram is kind of on its way out. So probably let's use Instagram as a platform. Anyway, I want to invite you to participate in these games. It's always fun. You always learn something. Well, dear rabbits. This is all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for taking your time and listening. If you like the show and you want to support me, there are easy and painless ways which are all for free. Rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatching platform and share it with your friends on your social media. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. You can find all the links in the show notes. Every little bit helps. Stay safe and stay curious. Until next Thursday, I am Marco and this has been Where Did the Rabbit Go? But when middle stool students, middle stool students. Yeah, that's for the bloopers. All right. Yeah, the dogs are also chipping in. (laughs) Okay, let us go with the third and last school-related myth for today. Probably the biggest one in my humble opinion. I think I'll just let this go for a moment and let the dogs bark.
It's like they know when I'm recording. Yeah. Let it all out.